The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, mental health conditions, and child abuse that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Performance is a key part of being a medical professional. Doctors must tell a patient what they need to hear while imparting the information in a way that's reassuring and palatable. Like an actor on stage, doctors gauge how their audience will respond and adjust accordingly. Dr. Jeffrey MacDonald was no exception. Years of theatrics as a driven and hardworking medical student made it all too easy for MacDonald to play such a role. Yet, after the story he'd lived in unraveled in a moment, his objectives went well beyond maintaining a professional bedside manner. He had to convince everyone that he was an innocent man. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting, I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to be here to assist Alistair to offer some medical insight into our final installment of our case of Dr. Jeffrey McDonald. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Jeffrey McDonald, 
the medical doctor and Green Beret who was convicted of murdering his wife and children in 1970. Last week, we learned about McDonald's early life, his time in the military, and the shocking slayings of his family members. Today, we'll hear about the perplexing investigation that followed, McDonald's claims of innocence, and the resulting controversy that lives on to this day. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. On February 17, 1970, less than one day after the killings of his wife and daughters, 26-year-old Jeffrey McDonald laid in bed at a hospital at Fort Bragg Military Base in North Carolina. He was recovering from numerous wounds and his breathing was ragged. McDonald had survived an attack by drugged-up hippies, or so he claimed. The attack left his family members dead and McDonald was being treated for a punctured and partially collapsed lung. To help it heal, doctors inserted a tube into his chest. As for a mild concussion he'd incurred in the horrifying debacle, they could do little. The rest of the wounds on McDonald's body were superficial, and he was expected to make a quick and full recovery. Still, the life that he'd known for years was now gone, changed forever by a single night. The fallout would become his heaviest cross to bear. Before the fateful February evening, Jeffrey McDonald had a seemingly wonderful life. After years of medical school at prestigious institutions, McDonald was on his way to becoming a surgeon before serving his country in the US Special Forces for a year. He had a loving wife, Colette, and two young daughters, five-year-old Kimberly and two-year-old Kristen. And the family of four was growing. By December 1969, Colette was about three months pregnant. The news should have been joyful for McDonald, who had been planning to move his family to a farm in Connecticut. But his strained relationship with his wife seemed to taint the prospect of a coming baby. Rather than leaning into his personal life and working to repair their relationship, McDonald turned to physical activity, namely boxing. It's unclear whether his sudden involvement with the sport actually quelled his inner turmoil over his growing family. His conflict soon changed, however, because on the night of February 16, 1970, sometime after midnight, Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen were stabbed and beaten to death in their own home. The only survivor of the rampage? Jeffrey McDonald. Naturally, authorities rushed to find suspects that would explain such a vile crime. To aid their search, McDonald reported that the home had been invaded by a gang of hippie cultists who chanted, Acid is groovy as they attacked. It was a believable story to the press and the public, especially given the way the Manson family murders dominated the media the previous summer. But to investigators, Jeffrey McDonald's story didn't add up. The commanding officer of the Criminal Investigation Division at Fort Bragg, Franz Grebner, had a bad feeling about the case from the start. The crime scene revealed no evidence of the fight McDonald swore he'd braved in the living room, 
nor of his supposed attempt to save his family after being stabbed himself. Within a few days, Grebner came to the belief that there had been no hippies. Instead, he believed Jeffrey MacDonald had likely murdered his own family. It was the only explanation that accounted for the way the crime scene actually looked. Were it up to Grebner, MacDonald probably would have been arrested mere days after the tragedy. Unfortunately, the Army Criminal Investigation Division at Fort Bragg was understaffed and underprepared for a case as complicated and controversial as the MacDonald murders. Many of the officers that were on staff were very inexperienced, and it reflected in the work they did. From the very first day, the investigation was plagued with little mistakes. They were disorganized, misplacing evidence, and failing to keep track of the amount of officers inside the house. While attempting to recover a bloody footprint, they made a mistake and destroyed the original print. They also forgot to search the house's trash before it was taken by the garbage truck, potentially losing even more evidence. But even with their blunders, there was ample evidence recovered, and Franz Grebner believed his team had what they needed to solve the case. It came in the form of hair, fibers, and of course, blood. They also found a surprising amount of prescription drugs in the house, including a large amount of the amphetamine diet pills known as Escatrol. Even for a doctor, the amount of medication kept at McDonald's home was seen by some as strange. Investigators were learning more than they expected about Jeffrey McDonald. Meanwhile, McDonald himself continued to rest at the Fort Bragg Hospital under the impression that the authorities were busy tracking killer hippies. For the record, this may have been because he was unable to follow up with them. He was dealing with medical complications. The tube inserted into his chest had failed to fully re-expand his collapsed right lung. The purpose of inserting a tube into the chest is to remove air that's collected between the lung and chest wall, an area called the pleural cavity. Removing this air allows the lung to expand and heal. There are a couple of reasons why the tube inserted into McDonald's chest might not have been doing the trick. It may have been inserted incorrectly, damaged in some way, or clogged by fragments of surrounding bodily tissues. There also may have been some blood in McDonald's pleural cavity as a result of his injury, which could have prevented his lung from fully expanding, despite the chest tube having removed all the air. Speaking more generally, this treatment can also be ineffective in cases where patients have a chest wall that is deformed, from things like scoliosis or a pectus deformity, or have scar tissue on the lungs from a prior injury, or have a history of poor pulmonary health from emphysema. However, there are ways of working around these issues, and sometimes it's just a matter of repositioning, changing, or inserting an additional chest tube. A collapsed lung can be really serious, but with proper management, it's not likely going to be deadly. Doctors inserted a second tube into McDonald's lung, which finally did the trick, and his collapsed lung healed up. On February 26, 1970, nine days after the murders, Jeffrey McDonald was discharged from the hospital. By the time he left, McDonald noticed that the armed guards were gone. 
he knew what that meant. The military no longer thought that he needed protecting. The search for the hippie cultists had ended and the investigators concluded that they didn't exist. MacDonald now understood that he was a suspect. Still, after MacDonald left the hospital, he grieved rather believably. Those around him saw nothing amiss in his behavior. He seemed as though he was going through a normal grieving process. MacDonald was granted leave from the base and journeyed with his mum to the South Carolina coast. As days passed, he tried to process the traumatic events that left him without a family. He also had to communicate with his wife's parents, who requested that the bodies of Colette and the children be sent to them. So the bodies of Dr. MacDonald's wife and children were transported back to New York, where Colette's mother and stepfather, Mildred and Alfred Kassab, arranged for their burial. The Kassabs hadn't heard any suggestions that MacDonald might be behind the murders. They fully accepted the story that MacDonald had told them, believing their daughter and grandchildren were killed by a cult of anonymous hippies. The prospect of never getting justice haunted them. But they took solace in the fact that MacDonald had lived. They thought that perhaps he would be the key to solving the perplexing case. Investigators did too. Members of the Army Criminal Investigation Division struggled to find evidence against MacDonald that was more than circumstantial. MacDonald's biggest blunder had been his unbelievable tale of events. As they searched for tangible proof of his guilt, the investigation was slow. Then, suddenly, they made a surprising discovery that had the potential to break the whole case wide open. Each member of the MacDonald family had a different blood type. Jeffrey MacDonald was type B, Colette was type A, Kimberly was type AB, and Kristen was type O. With this information, the investigators could easily determine which blood belonged to which victim at the crime scene. Blood types can be critical to investigations because humans can have differing blood types, so they're a helpful metric in identifying people. Scientists can determine blood type by looking for certain antigens in our blood. Specifically, they look for the presence or absence of the A and B antigens, which sit on the surface of the red blood cells. Antigens are foreign proteins that trigger the immune system to create antibodies to fight against them. Scientists also look for a protein in the blood called a rhesus factor, which can either be positive or negative, depending on whether it's present or absent. People can either have A antigens, B antigens, both, or neither, which makes a blood type O. And they can present positive or negative based on the rhesus factor protein. This creates A, B, AB, and O, which are four groups that can be either positive or negative. So in total, there are eight blood types. In truth, there are actually more than 600 other minor blood antigens that create rare blood classifications within each of these eight types. Knowing one's blood type is critically important for safe blood transfusions, and this is because mismatched types will create a deadly immune response due to the exposure of the foreign antigen. 
The most common blood type is O positive, and people with O negative blood are considered universal donors. This is because O negative blood can be administered to any other blood type without creating a dangerous immune reaction. This is why hospitals are in constant high demand of O positive and O negative blood. Going back to our story, it's not all that unusual for a family of four to have different blood types, despite their otherwise common genetics. The diversity here makes sense, but nevertheless, the identification of blood types held enormous potential for investigators. Given the disparate places where blood was splattered throughout the house, they could use their knowledge of each victim's blood type to locate where they were in the house at the time of the murders. This would strengthen their existing suspicion that MacDonald had lied about what really transpired during the course of the attack. By mid-March, the investigators determined that the blood by the entrance to the master bedroom was, in fact, from Kimberly MacDonald, and some of the blood found inside Kristen's bedroom belonged to Colette. The blood of Jeffrey MacDonald was only found in large amounts in two places, the kitchen and the hallway bathroom by the sink. It wasn't found in the living room where the hippies supposedly stabbed him, nor was it found in his children's bedrooms where he supposedly tried to save his daughter's lives by performing CPR after the attack. Finally, the investigators had hard evidence that MacDonald was lying. When we come back, the case moves to court. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. By the first week of April 1970, about six weeks after the murders of his wife and children, 26-year-old Dr. Jeffrey MacDonald had returned to Fort Bragg to resume his military duties. He moved into an apartment off base and picked up shifts at the local emergency room. Everyone there seemed to accept his story about the hippies wholeheartedly. For a moment, reacclimating to life seemed possible. Then, on April 6th, MacDonald was summoned to the office of the Criminal Investigation Division for a meeting. MacDonald showed up in uniform, perhaps expecting a friendly welcome from investigators. He received nothing of the sort. On the contrary, he'd walked in to an interrogation. CO Franz Grebner and two younger officers greeted MacDonald and he noticed they'd already set up a microphone and tape recorder. As MacDonald sat down, Grebner asked to hear MacDonald's story again, 
then informed MacDonald he'd remind him of his rights. To this, MacDonald nervously replied, It's sounding very ominous. Still, he launched into his story, hitting the same points he had before. He'd woken up to see the hippies looming over him. When he heard his wife and children screaming, he tried to get to them, but was intercepted by one of the hippies in the living room. There, he was stabbed and knocked unconscious. When he came to, his family was dead. The investigators asked him to repeat the account with more details and puzzled over the small cuts on his abdomen, which didn't fit his story of being stabbed. Their questions sharpened, and it soon became clear what they were implying. When he realized the direction the interview was taking, MacDonald quickly denied any involvement in the murders. Naturally, Grebner didn't let this change his mind. To further hammer home just how preposterous MacDonald's story was, Grebner wondered aloud what specific drug MacDonald believed his attackers had taken and how it would have led them to such dire lengths. MacDonald drew on his past experience as an ER doctor. He explained that young drug users were often unclear on what they'd taken, and his assailants could have been on any number of other drugs, from LSD to amphetamines. LSD and amphetamines are really different drugs with different psychological effects. However, it's not ridiculous that Jeffrey MacDonald would conflate the two. LSD is a hallucinogen that works on the brain's serotonergic system, while amphetamines activate the feel-good or energizing dopaminergic center. Both the serotonin and dopamine neurotransmitters play a role in our mood, behavior, sensation, and cognition. Although it's considered rare due to serotonin's calming quality, large doses of LSD can trigger someone to become violent. This is because LSD experiences, or trips, are very unpredictable and have the potential to provoke intense fear and create scary perceptual distortions. These trips can induce or aggravate psychotic disorders like schizophrenia and a bipolar illness as well. Amphetamines can also exacerbate underlying mental health issues and can additionally cause irritability, aggressive behavior, and depression. In a similar vein to LSD, amphetamines can also lead to delusional thinking and hallucinations if taken in high doses. These symptoms are even more likely if the drug abuse is coupled with sleep deprivation. Amphetamines are also activating because they speed up or stimulate the central nervous system, which definitely provides fuel for a violent outlash. Overall, though, both drugs could potentially create and contribute to violence, but it's more common with amphetamines, which McDonald was known to have used regularly. McDonald didn't commit to any drug in particular, instead claiming that it could have been anything LSD, mescaline, peyote, speed, whatever they were on, he claimed, caused them to be frenzied, violent, and irrational. In turn, the investigators asked about the large amount of prescription drugs he kept in the house. But MacDonald reassured them the many pill bottles, some of which contained amphetamines, were for medical purposes. Unconvinced, the investigators probed other questionable aspects of McDonald's story. Fibers from his pajama jacket, for instance, were found beneath Colette's body, 
despite McDonald's claims that he came across her when she was already dead. To this, McDonald claimed he lacked the scientific knowledge he'd need to answer their questions. His nervous evasion likely reveals that McDonald knew he was walking on thin ice. The interviews stretched further on into the afternoon, and eventually, the investigators said outright that they believed McDonald was the killer. Flustered, McDonald vociferously denied the accusation and even agreed to take a polygraph test within the next day or two. As soon as he walked out of Grebner's office, however, McDonald realized that a polygraph test was a risk he couldn't afford to take. So 10 minutes after he left, he called the investigators and canceled the appointment. He wasn't going to give them any more accidental help. He was going to get a lawyer and fight. Later that afternoon, the provost marshal of Fort Bragg formally announced that Jeffrey McDonald was their prime suspect in the murder of his family. While no charges were filed, McDonald was being relieved of his duties while the investigation continued. In response, McDonald hired a high-profile attorney from Philadelphia, Bernard Siegel, to represent him. Over the next few weeks, Siegel had McDonald go through a battery of psychological tests to gauge his mental state. He needed to know if McDonald was capable of killing his family. The doctors all reported back to Siegel that McDonald was healthy and stable. One psychologist wrote that he believed the crime was probably committed by a psychotic or criminal psychopath, and he didn't believe McDonald was either. Psychosis and psychopathy are sometimes confused, but they're very different, and it's much harder to hide psychosis than psychopathy. If someone has psychosis or is psychotic, it means their brain isn't processing information correctly, which affects their relationship to reality. They may hear and see things that aren't there and can have distorted or impaired cognition. This would be described as a secondary psychosis because it's not caused by an existing mental illness. Conversely, psychosis is considered primary when it's the result of a psychotic condition like schizophrenia or a bipolar disorder. A psychopath, on the other hand, in terms of psychiatry, is someone who's been diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder, or ASPD. Symptoms of this include trouble expressing remorse or empathy, difficulty in distinguishing right from wrong, frequent lying and manipulating, and a general disregard for socially responsible and acceptable behavior. To properly diagnose someone as having a psychotic disorder or having ASPD, mental health professionals need to conduct a full psychiatric evaluation, examine medical histories, and refer to the DSM-5. It's possible that McDonald could have experienced amphetamine-induced psychosis on the night of the murders, given that he was severely sleep-deprived, was abusing Escatrol, and might have been arguing with his wife. If he in fact had some other serious psychological disorder, he did a very good job of hiding it. With the doctor's positive reports, Bernie Siegel took comfort in believing he was likely defending an innocent man. As Bernie Siegel prepared McDonald's defense, the military investigators got their ducks in a row. About a month after McDonald's interrogation, 
they were ready to proceed with the case. On May 1st, 1970, the United States Army officially charged 26-year-old Dr. Jeffrey McDonald with three counts of murder. Now, the American military legal system works in a fundamentally different way to the civilian one. Instead of the accused facing a jury of their peers, when the case reaches trial, they face judgment from a jury of officers chosen by the military lawyers. Because the jury was essentially chosen by the prosecution themselves, Bernie Siegel believed it would be impossible to convince them to side with the defense. So his strategy was to make McDonald's case before it even reached a trial, by staging his defense during a pre-trial Article 32 hearing. This is usually a simple procedural step where an appointed investigative officer hears the evidence and authorizes a military tribunal. But Siegel didn't see it as a mere formality. Soon after the Article 32 hearing began on July 6, 1970, Siegel trotted out a cavalcade of witnesses who testified to the sloppy, even negligent work of the forensic team that first examined the crime scene. In particular, Siegel emphasized their failure to find any footprints in the house. He claimed negligence in preserving the crime scene made it impossible for the true culprit's footprints to be found among the shoe prints of cops and investigators. According to Siegel, the scant evidence that did exist was muddied by sloppy investigative work. To further defend his client, Siegel brought out psychiatrists and doctors who testified to McDonald's healthy mental state and character. But perhaps most convincing was Colette's stepfather, Freddie Kassab, who took the stand to defend his stepson-in-law. It was an overwhelming show of force from the defense. The prosecution was utterly unprepared for the challenge. And their job was about to get harder. In August of 1970, a month into the Article 32 proceedings, a 22-year-old delivery man named William Posey approached Bernie Siegel at the motel where he was staying. Posey knew that Mildred and Freddie Kassab were offering $5,000 for anyone who had information about their daughter's murderer, and it seems he wanted to collect. He told Siegel that he knew a woman who matched McDonald's description of one of the murderous hippies. The woman was 18-year-old Helena Stokely. Posey's neighbor in what was known at the time as the Hippie District of nearby Fayetteville. She seemed to fit the description of McDonald's killer perfectly. Posey described her as a drug addict who often wore a floppy hat and a long blonde wig. Posey claimed that at 4 a.m. on February 17th, the morning after the murders, he witnessed Stokely arrive back at her house in a delirious hurry. According to him, she'd been dropped off by a car which had two or three men inside. Posey added that in the weeks afterwards, Stokely abruptly stopped wearing her wig and floppy hat and had even informed Posey she was high on LSD and mescaline that night. He also claimed 
that Stokely had once said that she and her boyfriend couldn't get married until they had killed some more people. Bernie Siegel immediately brought William Posey to the Article 32 hearing where Posey repeated his claims about Helena Stokely. The investigators knew Stokely well. As it turned out, not only was she the daughter of a former lieutenant stationed at Fort Bragg, but she also worked as a drug informant for the Fayetteville police. So, even though Stokely admitted drug use and confirmed for investigators that she occasionally wore a blonde wig and floppy hat, they didn't take the allegations seriously. They were simply convinced that McDonald was the perp. But McDonald still put up a fight. He nationalized his own trial and newspapers readily spread his side of the story. In response, he received broad support from the general public, who now believed he'd been wrongly accused. The strong defense critiquing the poorly conducted crime scene sweep, the discovery of Helena Stokely's potential involvement, and public attention on the case all turned the tide against the prosecution. On October 14, 1970, two days after Jeffrey McDonald's 27th birthday, the colonel in charge of the Article 32 hearing, Warren Rock, made his final recommendations. According to Joe McGuinness, author of the book Fatal Vision, Rock declared that McDonald was innocent and the charges against him should be dropped. Then he suggested that civilian investigators should be tasked with looking into Helena Stokely. The Army did not publicly reveal these recommendations, nor did they continue to pursue Stokely. But they did drop all charges against Jeffrey McDonald. As the dust settled, McDonald took a victory lap. In December 1970, he was granted an honorable discharge from the military. He celebrated by making a friendly and sympathetic appearance on The Dick Cavett Show, one of the most-watched late-night shows in the country. On the screen, McDonald appeared to be a charming man, focused on getting on with his life. But Colette's mom and stepfather, Mildred and Freddie Kassab, who were still mourning their daughter and grandchildren, watched his television appearance with worry. They had no interest in moving on with their lives when the culprit hadn't been found. They were satisfied that McDonald had been exonerated, but the job wasn't done. They still needed to find the killers and bring them to justice. To make matters worse, the Kassams noticed McDonald lied about the extent of his injuries, overstating the number of wounds and claiming he'd almost died. The Kassams knew the truth. McDonald's wounds were superficial and he was never in any real mortal danger. His dishonesty forced them to wonder what else their son-in-law was willing to lie about. It was soon after McDonald's on-screen appearance that they began to consider the unthinkable. Was it possible that the true killer had been under their noses the entire time? If so, they defended him. 
the prospect haunted them. When we come back, Jeffrey McDonald faces renewed scrutiny, this time from his in-laws. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. At the start of 1971, nearly a year after the murder of his family, 27-year-old Dr. Jeffrey McDonald began planning a new life for himself. Soon, he'd have his sights set on moving to California, where he planned to return to hospital work. But back in New York, Mildred and Freddie Kassab hadn't given up the ghost of their daughters and granddaughters passing. They were more determined than ever to find her killer. Colette's stepfather, Freddie Kassab, became obsessed. He was convinced that the only way forward with the investigation was obtaining the transcript from the entire Article 32 hearing, which was never made public. His relationship with Jeffrey McDonald deteriorated as the months passed. McDonald didn't help with the fight to get the transcript as much as the Kassabs assumed he would, and McDonald's apathy only worsened their suspicions. Finally, in February of 1971, the army capitulated and allowed Freddie Kassab to receive his own copy of the Article 32 hearing transcript. Kassab went through every single word of the transcript and arrived at one conclusion. Jeffrey McDonald was a liar. Like the investigators before, Kassab saw clearly the inconsistencies, mistruths, and blatantly obvious fabrications baked into McDonald's constantly shifting story, which he was now openly sharing with a national audience. McDonald claimed he was beaten far worse than he actually was. His claims of hearing his wife and daughter cry out for him contradicts his claim that they were already mortally wounded before he'd woken up. Furthermore, it didn't make sense that McDonald's blood ended up in the kitchen, nor that there were no major disturbances to the room where he'd supposedly fought the intruders. On March 28, 
1971, Freddie Kassab returned to Fort Bragg and stepped inside the home where his stepdaughter and her children had been killed. He walked through each room, staying for hours as he examined every inch of the house with the help of two army investigators. When he emerged from the house that night, Freddie Kassab no longer had any doubt about who was responsible for the murders. Now, he had to find a way to take his former son-in-law down. MacDonald, however, would continue to make it difficult. In the summer of 1971, 27-year-old Jeffrey MacDonald moved across the country to Long Beach, California, where he returned to the world of medicine. He got a job as an emergency room doctor at St. Mary's Medical Center, and after only six months, he was promoted to director of the ER. The ER director is a major position in a hospital, and they're in charge of designing emergency room budgets, managing time cards for doctors and staff, creating work schedules, and other non-patient care-related issues. They also often work closely with public health officials, government agencies, and other organizations tied to their hospital. It's not necessarily unusual for someone to be hired as an ER director after only six months of emergency room work. This scenario would likely be the result of someone being stellar in their performance, an unexpected opening for this position, or both. It's possible that Jeffrey McDonald was very good at his job, and it's also possible that he was a willing filler for the post. In my experience, however, it's not a career that most emergency room doctors are attracted to. Working in an ER provides medical professionals with hands-on clinical work and offers them very defined hours. An ER director's responsibilities and hours are very different in comparison, and because of this, a doctor's motivations for these different positions don't really line up or match. I've personally never seen doctors getting promoted on charm or public standing rather than merit. However, this is something that happens, and more commonly, Alistair, in administrative and other non-clinical positions. It's possible that Jeffrey McDonald's charm could have contributed to his hiring, but who knows? Regardless of why he was offered the role as director, his career was clearly not hampered by the murders. MacDonald continued his professional successes outside the hospital. He published medical articles and wrote chapters in textbooks, joined the board of directors of the local American Heart Association, and co-founded the American Trauma Society. Within a few years, Jeffrey MacDonald was one of the most beloved doctors in Long Beach. Practically unimpeachable. Back on the East Coast, Freddie Kassab was doing everything in his power to bring Dr. McDonald down. But it was a complicated task. He had to convince the United States Justice Department to indict McDonald again, despite the fact that the army had declined to prosecute him. The evidence was still all circumstantial, and the Justice Department didn't see the point in re-litigating a case that had become so public. But Kassab was relentless. In addition to petitioning the Justice Department, he staged a public relations assault on the army. He bought newspaper advertisements and wrote countless letters demanding they reopen their investigation into McDonald. The fight dragged on for years. Finally, in the summer of 1974, 
over four years after the murders, the Justice Department relented. In August, they impaneled a grand jury in Raleigh, North Carolina, to investigate the McDonald case. 30-year-old Jeffrey McDonald was outraged. He couldn't believe that he had to leave his comfortable, happy California life for a detour into his dark past. When he was called to testify, McDonald couldn't hide his resentment. On the stand, he came across as hostile and dismissive, which only hurt his defense. While McDonald continued to repeat his story of the hippie attackers, the prosecution offered their own interpretation of the evidence. In January of 1975, FBI analyst Paul Stombor testified on what he believed happened based on the physical evidence. That night, inside the McDonald household, Colette and Jeffrey McDonald got into a fight in the master bedroom. McDonald may have struck Colette first, causing her nose to bleed. Stombor speculated that in response, Colette picked up a club and hit McDonald with it, explaining the small wound on McDonald's head. McDonald, enraged, snatched the club away from his wife. Stombor testified that he believed McDonald swung his arm back to hit Colette and accidentally hit Kimberly, who was standing behind him by the doorway. Her injury may have been fatal. Stombor suggested that McDonald, realizing what he'd done, killed the rest of the family. He then inflicted some injuries on himself, like the punctured lung, to give himself a defense before calling the police. The grand jury was convinced. On January 24, 1975, they indicted Jeffrey McDonald on three counts of murder. In California, federal police took him into custody. Five years after the murders, McDonald was finally going to face a trial to determine his guilt or innocence. It was time for the court battles to truly begin. McDonald called on his lawyer from the initial case, Bernie Siegel, to defend him once again. Siegel's strategy was similar to his successful one in 1970. He wanted to avoid a trial completely. So he worked his magic, challenging the indictment itself and claiming the lengthy court process was denying McDonald his Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial. An appeals court agreed and threw out the indictment. In response, the prosecution appealed that ruling. Ironically, Determining whether the case was infringing on McDonald's right to a speedy trial stretched on for years. Finally, in 1978, the case reached the Supreme Court, who unanimously overruled the appeals court decision to dismiss the murder charges. In 1979, nearly a decade after the crimes, 36-year-old Jeffrey McDonald entered a courtroom to face charges for the murder of his wife and daughters. The trial went similarly to the grand jury four years earlier. 
McDonald and his lawyers maintained his story and challenged the sloppy investigation, while FBI analyst Paul Stombaugh served as star witness for the prosecution, presenting his theory of McDonald's guilt. McDonald's defense again offered Helena Stokely as an alternate suspect, even calling her to testify. But Stokely was an extremely unreliable narrator. She was too drugged up to say where she was on the night of the murders. McDonald's lawyers tried to call in six witnesses who claimed they'd heard Stokely confess to the killings in the years since. When the FBI interviewed her, however, Stokely recanted any confessions she'd made. The judge determined that anything Stokely allegedly said was too untrustworthy and barred the witness to her confessions from taking the stand. The final nail in the coffin of the defense was Jeffrey McDonald himself. In stark contrast to his hostile behavior during the grand jury in 1975 and his stoic, emotionless tone in the tapes of the initial interrogations in 1970, McDonald was histrionic during the trial choking back tears on the stand as he spoke of his murdered family. The performance was unconvincing. It only served to emphasize to the jury that MacDonald was a liar. On August 29, 1979, after six and a half hours of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict. They found Jeffrey McDonald guilty on two counts of second-degree murder for the deaths of Colette and Kimberly and one count of first-degree murder for the death of Kristen. Freddie and Mildred Kassab were finally satisfied. Immediately after the verdict, they announced to the press that they could now rest in peace. Jeffrey McDonald was in a state of shock as he was handcuffed by the marshal. But the battle wasn't over for him. Through the next four decades, Dr. Jeffrey McDonald maintained his innocence. He filed every appeal possible and had nearly exhausted his options in December of 2018. He's consistently tried to get the public on his side. During the trial, McDonald invited a young author named Joe McGuinness to write a book detailing his side of the story. This backfired. McGuinness eventually came to believe that McDonald was guilty, and the resulting book became a bestseller. But some do believe in McDonald's innocence. Over the years, many have argued that the evidence against him was flimsy, circumstantial, and obfuscated by poor detective work. The fact that Helena Stokely was never fully investigated and that her alleged confessions were never heard by a jury remains a point of contention. She allegedly made further confessions, including one to her mother before she died in 1983 from pneumonia and cirrhosis of the liver. Her mother didn't publicly reveal the confession until 2007. The McDonald case remains controversial to this day. 
The McDonald case is a complicated one. I obviously can't say for sure, but based on what we've been discussing, Alistair, it seems more likely that Jeffrey McDonald is guilty. His story just doesn't seem to add up with regard to what we know about the crime scene and blood evidence. There were inconsistencies about whose blood was found and where, and a lack of proof to substantiate his claim about a fight at the murder scene. We also know that he was horribly sleep-deprived on the night of the killings, was taking Escatrol, and had a lot of other prescription pills in his home. The fact that he lied about the extent of his injuries also makes him less believable. It's interesting how medical training makes it easier for doctors to get away with violent murders. Not only does it give them an anatomical knowledge, access to medications, and a collection of sharp instruments, it also gives them an upstanding, trustworthy, and sometimes infallible social status. McDonald may have been a good doctor, but however you view it, he wasn't a respectable person. Currently, Jeffrey McDonald is 77 years old, serving his sentence at a federal prison in Cumberland, Maryland. He reportedly had the opportunity to request parole in 2020, but as of today, he's still in prison. In order to be granted parole, McDonald is required to admit guilt in the crimes. But after 50 years of maintaining his innocence, McDonald refuses to confess. Ever since the night of February 16, 1970, Jeffrey McDonald has been performing. He put on a show to convince the world that he is innocent, and it almost worked. The show lives on to this day. McDonald continues to make one last outlandish claim that one day, He'll be vindicated and walk out of prison a free man. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Jeffrey McDonald, among the many sources we used, we found Fatal Vision by Joe McGuinness to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals from Parcast, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Chickfordortier, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hold up. 